Episode 6. We've arrived at the end of the story. You've listened to the last five weeks of exposition to get to this point. How did it all end? So, we should all be on the same page, at least with regard to our understanding of John and Brooke. You know that by summer of 2021, I was not under any delusion that Brooke was a real person. And since that was the case, I was highly skeptical about most of what John had told me about himself. All I knew for sure was that he wanted to talk to someone. And I had done my best to make it clear that the gifts and the monetary donations were unnecessary. My goal at this point was just to be kind. To treat John like anyone else who had some beliefs that I found odd. I just wanted to be a good friend. But no matter what I said, John clearly believed that he'd paid for something more. I'm Katie Ruvalcaba, and this is Parasocial Anxiety. Did you ever see the movie Gone with the Wind? It's one of my favorite movies, even though the racial depictions and the treatment of women therein leave something to be desired, to say the least. But what I love about it isn't Fiery Scarlet or Debonair Rhett Butler. I've always viewed Melanie Wilkes as the hero of that story. There's a seam that looms large in my mind when I think of Melanie Wilkes. Even if you've never seen the movie, you've probably at some point seen a photo of Vivian Lee's Scarlett O'Hara in a red feathered dress. She's looking every bit the tart that she's meant to seem in that scene. If you've never seen it, Scarlett just got caught declaring her love for Melanie's husband, Ashley, telling him to run away with her. And this in spite of the fact that Melanie has only ever been a friend to Scarlett and Ashley Wilkes basically has nothing in common with her. She just wants what she can't have. Bad news for Scarlett is that she's overheard by Ashley's sister, India, which means everybody is about to know. Her own husband even dresses her up in the least modest outfit she owns and drops her off to fend for herself at Ashley's birthday party. So in this scene, the whole room knows that Scarlett has done something awful, and Scarlett is prepared to be humiliated. The crowd stops singing for he's a jolly good fellow to Ashley, and it's physically painful as every hateful eye in the room looks at Scarlett, brazen as you like, standing in the home of a woman whose husband she's just tried to steal. Melanie Wilkes's face is completely unreadable. She's in this modest blue dress, and she's got no rouge on her face, and it's set like steel. She walks really quickly over to Scarlet, and the viewer half expects her to haul off and slap this hussy for her nerve. But instead, Melanie kisses Scarlet on the cheek. She's a reverse Judas. She tells her, What a lovely dress. India couldn't be here tonight. Come and help me greet my guests. Melanie takes Scarlet around the room and one by one shows each guest that she loves her friend and that she will not be a party to her humiliation that she's standing by her. I was first going to say, no matter how awful the thing that she's done wrong, but honestly, Melanie can't even conceive of Scarlett doing something so awful. In the face of overwhelming evidence, Melanie will not believe that her friend could be the villain. I've spent much of my life hoping to be Melanie Wilkes, to be the fool so that someone else could know their value to love people so much that my own reputation and esteem will be sacrificed long before I'll allow even my most treacherous friend to be unloved. I'm not Melanie Wilkes, but I admire the heck out of her. Going into the summer of 2021, Luis and I all but knew that there was no Brooke. 
we suspected strongly that if John was sick at all, he was certainly not dying any more than we all are. What we saw was a sad man who needed friends and who didn't know how to be a friend other than to buy things. So we were involved in this relationship, hoping to be the friends he needed. When my garden began to grow in the spring, I would send John photos of it. I would encourage him to get outside in nature and to appreciate the sun. When we stained our picnic tables for the summertime season, we told him all about it. We sent him photos of all that. All the while, he would only ever say how badly he felt. We spent a lot of time trying to make him happy. For Luisa's birthday, I had planned to get him some weights. Luis goes on these kicks every few years where he's going to get in shape for real this time. So I had found a deal on some free weights at Costco. John insisted on sending the money for them, but he said it was important that I take credit for the gift. A thing I'm somewhat known for on my stream is always giving credit to the person who purchased an item for me. I have a bowl called the Sarah Catholic Bowl and a mixer called the Missy Mixer. But John made it clear that he didn't want me to tell Luis that he had given me the money for the weights. Fair enough, I guess. But since all of my income is crowdsourced, my husband is aware that it always comes from someone, either as a group or as an individual. But since John, since John was so insistent that I take credit for the weights, I didn't mention anything about it. Imagine my surprise when Luis and I were speaking to John on the phone that night, and he tells Luis, did Katie tell you how she got the money for the weights? Luis said no, not specifically. John said he was surprised that I didn't tell him since the money had come from him. What the heck, I thought. He knew I was standing right there with Luis, so I was lost. What, what was he trying to do here? I tried to keep my voice from sounding accusatory, and instead I opted to be playful. I was like, John, you told me not to tell him. But he said something to the effect of, I just didn't think you'd take credit for it. I had no idea at the time what he meant by that. After that, he brought up the weights to Luis all the time. Did he like them? Were they working out okay? He sent Luis some protein bars to go with them. More as a joke than anything, Luis started doing his own streams in the evening after work. He was calling them his power hour streams. This was just for a few of the viewers from the Good Egg community who would come over and encourage him as he worked out for an hour. Most fitness streamers on Twitch are sort of like the fitness models on Instagram, very buff and barely dressed. That wasn't what Luis was doing. It was really more just to have someone to talk to while he lifted weights in our garage. They would joke about him becoming the number three fitness streamer on Tuesday nights. During these streams, Luis had a bit goal to purchase a rower, like a rowing machine. He had found a good deal on one, and he was hoping to be able to purchase it with his Twitch payout if he could get one. At that period in time, Twitch only gave you a paycheck if you had more than $100 worth of subs and bits. Otherwise, they would bank your earnings until you finally met that threshold, and then they'd pay it out all at once. It had probably been two or three weeks of power hour streams where the chat had donated about half of the bits necessary to purchase the rower when a box arrived on our doorstep. I'll give you one guess what it was. John told me that he had sent the rower to Luis, and Luis looked upset. He didn't even know John had been watching his streams. He never chatted. Just seeing the box, at first I was really excited, something that I really wanted, and I couldn't wait to start using it. But then after just a matter of seconds, it sunk in that uh, something my community was all sort of working together for was just purchased by one person that created a sense of anxiety because I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to thank the people who had already given money towards it or what I was going to do with their money. You feel a sense of responsibility and guilt if you don't end up using 
donations for what they were intended. Like I've said, we take stated goals seriously. Just like how I sat there and tried to decide whether the right thing to do when I got that $5,000 donation on a goal that said graham crackers, Luis was sitting here trying to decide what he should do with the money donated toward the rower if he already had a rower. There's no way to refund bits on Twitch. But also, we had this come up before where chat doesn't really mind if we use the money that they donated for something else. They don't take goals as seriously as we do, remember? So that night, when Luis started up his Power Hour stream to do the rowing stream, he told everybody that had donated the bits thank you for contributing. He thanked them by screen name, and he included John in that group. About four people or so had given bits toward the rower goal, so Luis felt like it was important to tell them thank you. I'm telling you all of this sort of secondhand, by the way. I had fallen asleep before Luis even started this stream. I didn't know much of any of it. So when I woke up the next day to a text from Brooke... Did you hear the air quotes in my voice? It said, Luis needs to talk to John about last night. I looked at Luis and I said, what happened last night? Well, first I didn't really know like what he was talking about, but then, you know, it occurred to me, he was probably watching my stream because I made an announcement that the rower showed up and I was using it during that stream. He didn't say anything while the stream was happening, but I connected those dots right away and realized like, he was either upset or feeling something about how the stream went the prior night. Did you say anything rude or mean about him? Or uh, No. What I, what I ended up doing was, during that stream, like thanking my entire community. Because I think prior to it arriving, there had been maybe three or four different people who had donated towards the goal of the rower. I got the sense that he was upset that I didn't specifically direct my thanks towards him. Luis gets really nervous on the podcast, so you guys should tell him what a good job he did on Twitter. Anyway, so Luis had looked down at his phone and he had seen this text from Brooke. John is really upset. We need to talk about what happened on stream. And he was confused. He didn't know what he'd done wrong. He assumed that it had to do with the rower, but he wasn't sure exactly what he'd said. We went back to see if I could find a clip of it and I couldn't find one. But Basically, it said something like, we got the rower, thanks to everybody who donated. Thank all of you so much. And then he continued with his stream. But that morning, the stream video was still available, so we had gone back and watched it, and we know for sure he didn't say anything awful. I told him that I suspected John wanted full credit for purchasing the rower. And I was right. We were late to mass that morning because Luis had been on the phone with John for over an hour, just repeatedly saying he was sorry for not giving him sole credit. He kept explaining that other people had contributed and he wanted to honor that, just over and over, the same robotic repetition happening on John's end. There was no question about it. He felt that Luis had wronged him by giving credit to the other people who had contributed. He pointed out to Luis that their donations had not bought the rower he had, and he shouldn't have thanked anyone else. Luis wanted John to correct that with his literally 14 viewers that night. He wanted to make it clear that only John had sent the rower and that Luis would not be using other people's donations to buy it. Luis spent most of the day feeling terrible. Like, did he steal the money from all of those people or was John overreacting? Brooke was, of course, weighing in with me. She couldn't believe that Luis had lied to everyone, and she was telling me over and over that John picked out the nicest rower for Luis. How could he say that anyone else bought it? 
both of them were texting us from different numbers to tell us how wrong Luis had been. This, I imagine, was the utility of Brooke being a second person for John. Not only did her female organs open up a whole host of other medical issues he could claim to be suffering from, but having two people agree that he was in the right and that we were wrong to have done this made us constantly second-guess if we were the ones who were treating him poorly. He was very clearly making this a question of the rest of chat versus him. He was offended that Luis had given credit to anyone else. He wanted to be our everything. And Brooke agreed. We should be more grateful. Shortly after that came the final incident. Now, compared to cops knocking on our door with ARs, it's probably going to seem like nothing. But for me, it was so much scarier. It was the day before our oldest daughter's birthday. Maggie was turning 14, and in a rare move for a teenager, she wanted to spend her birthday evening playing Fortnite with her dad. We have great kids, by the way. We spend a lot of time together as a family, and I'm incredibly grateful for my good luck in that sense. So Luis stayed up until 2 o'clock in the morning playing shooter games with his daughter, her on the ground floor of our house on the PC that John had sent me, and Luis upstairs in our bedroom on the Xbox that a noob in our community had gifted to him. I was asleep. I go to bed early whenever I can manage it. Moms are going to get this. But in the morning, I woke up to a ton of texts from Brooke. Luis needs to call John. He is so upset about what happened last night. What now? I wondered. And Luis had no idea. He told me I was supposed to call him after I got off with Maggie, but it was so late, so I just texted him that I was going to bed, and I went to bed instead. That didn't seem to me like something that would warrant the concern that Brooke seemed to have. She texted me that John was in overwhelming pain. He hadn't taken his morphine the night before because he didn't want to be sleepy when Luis called. She said that John's father was livid with Luis because he had made John stay up all night crying in pain. John had waited for Luis and Luis had never called. Now, 2 a.m. our time is 7 a.m. in the UK, by the way. Any reasonable person would have concluded that John had gone to sleep long before that. Brooke wanted me to make Luis call John and apologized. She kept talking about how we owed him that, that we needed to set up scheduled call times to speak with him after he had done all that he had done for us. The least that we could do was to make sure that we were available to speak to him a few times a week. Now, conversations with John never lasted less than an hour, and Luis has a full-time job in addition to our five kids. I was not about to set up a scheduled phone call time for anyone, and no one else in our community has ever requested anything like that. My mom doesn't even get a scheduled call time. I told Brooke that we need to stay out of it. Just let John and Luis work it out. I told her it didn't seem like a big deal to me. The texts were constant that day. John had a bunch of seizures that morning because he was overtired. John was in so much pain and vomiting because Luis had not called him. John's dad was sure that John was going to be dead any minute. Brooke was sending me screenshots of John's phone bill to prove that he really didn't talk to us all that often, and we should make more time for him. It was constant, it was aggressive, and it was manipulative. By 5.30 that evening, we were on our way to Mass with our kids when Brooke finally said the thing that she'd been kind of implying, dancing around all day. She said, I'm so upset, Katie. I paid for your holiday. She meant Disney World. She meant the trip that had isolated my community. She meant that people who were telling me that they had been left out and unloved, she felt sorry for the fact that she had donated that. 
she meant the thing that I specifically told her not to do and that I had tried to refund time and time again. I told her that was a low blow and that it was unfair and that donations do not mean that she owns me. I texted her that I was not going to be responding to her anymore and I would only speak directly to John, that I was going into mass, and I left my phone in the car. Brooke never texted me again after that. Or rather, John never texted me as Brooke again after that. In Mass, I was shaking. I was so angry. I was praying for wisdom, for patience, and for kindness so that I would not say anything that would hurt anyone. After all, all I had were suspicions, though very well-founded ones, about what was going on. If I was wrong, I could really hurt somebody. If you've never been to a Catholic Mass in the summertime, especially a Saturday evening Mass in the summertime, there's very few people who attend, so the whole thing takes like 45 minutes, an hour at most. When we returned to the car, I checked my phone. There were more than 30 text messages and two missed calls. John was freaking out. I have to say, I'm very thankful that I prayed about it. God gave me a sort of peace about the whole situation. I'm normally a bit of a hothead. I texted John saying, I'm angry right now. I'm not going to talk about this tonight. I will talk to you tomorrow. I sent that exact same text probably 10 times that night because he just kept texting. Eventually, he called Luis, and Luis was on the phone with him for hours. We had recorded part of that conversation because John was threatening to charge back his donations. Remember, a chargeback is a huge problem because PayPal finds the streamer if they hold up. We thought we needed a recording of this threat to prove that it was malicious. I'm not going to play it for you because that seems like a low blow, but just for the record, it exists. As it turns out, he hadn't donated in over six weeks, so he couldn't have charged back anything even if he wanted to. The threat was just to put us in our place. Luis told him how his behavior was making us feel, and John doubled down. He said he should be allowed to tell his friends that there is a family in America that relies on him. He was saying this to the primary breadwinner in my family. He was trying to convince my husband that he was our provider. It was completely gross. Luis ended the call and told John that he'd ask me to talk to him in the morning, but after this discussion tonight, John shouldn't bank on me being willing to talk at all. Luis is a super nice guy. He's never going to flatly call someone an a-hole, even when they're being one. John kept calling throughout the night. He got into Discord and sent messages, Keep in mind, in the mythology, John hadn't used his own Discord cord in over a year. In the middle of the night, he posted in the general Discord discussion that was visible to my whole community. He also deleted those messages in the middle of the night, but a few people kind of reached out to my moderator with concerns. Mooney had asked for details about the messages. I'm going to read you one of the replies. Somebody in my community said, The first one was short, and it said that he was angry, that he didn't get to do a lot. I hoped what he meant was that he didn't get to donate for events that day. The second was more mild, but it was still weird, and the third one just asked for Katie to check her phone. I've asked around. Nobody screen-capped the messages before they were deleted. Basically, everyone tells me he was clearly angry, and he wanted the whole community to know. But I hadn't seen any of it. I'd been asleep, as he should have been. Mary still woke up in the middle of the night at this point, so at 4 a.m. I had woken up to put her back in bed and I checked my phone. John had texted eight more times overnight. I didn't even get a chance to read them all when my heart stopped. A new message came in. A bitmoji of John making a call-me gesture with his little animated fingers. He had seen the red receipt pop up. 
he had been staring at his phone, waiting for me. This was worse than the Christmas morning package. He was watching and waiting. It was four o'clock in the morning. I put my phone down. I didn't reply, but I couldn't go back to sleep either. Luis and I decided in the morning that we needed to cut ties with John. It was too scary, and it was becoming too controlling. He felt that we should have chosen to talk to him on the phone instead of spending time with our daughter on her birthday. He accused of, uh, accused us of exacerbating his illness. He was trying to manipulate us into believing that we were his property. In the same way that he had made it him versus chat, he was trying to make it him versus our kids. So I texted him in the morning. So I'm going to level with you. I don't think Brooke is a real person. I think it's you. And I'm worried about what that means for all the conversations we've had. And if that's a lie, are you even sick? I don't feel safe. I'm worried for my children. Rocky's a real person. If you don't believe me, that's up to you. I've done nothing wrong at the end of the day. Just leave me out of it. Just seems like you're calling me a liar. That's what a good friendship this is. Bye-bye. Okay, I think it's best to just not communicate any further. Luis told me that you were threatening to charge back donations last night. I'm getting the feeling you believe you've bought our time. I think it's best to just take a step back. Those were the last words we've ever exchanged. At first, he only deleted his address out of the Discord messages, but then he went back and deleted about 70% of the messages. Then the whole profile. I thought the address thing was weird. Why was he worried about me having his address? What was he thinking I was going to do, swat him? And just a reminder, the detective didn't come to tell me that the swatting came from the UK until July or August. This whole thing happened in June. I thought it was strange that he seemed more worried about me than I was about him. He's never spoken to me since then. But that wasn't the last I heard of him. About a week after that, I got a new follower on Instagram, an account called RIP underscore John's screen name. It had two photos on it. One was of the side of a freshly dug grave. The other was a funeral wreath that said son and brother on two ribbons. A Twitter account with the same name was also created and it followed me. It had one tweet telling people that if they were John's friends from Grand Theft Auto, to reach out to John's sister with an email address, a woman name, and some numbers. So there it was. John died. I had closure to this situation. Let's set aside for the f a second the fact that in my mythology, John was an only child, and that there was no obituary online. To me, this was just symbolic of John letting us go. The trouble was I didn't interact with those accounts. I didn't leave my sympathies. I didn't offer to pray for the repose of his soul. And I probably should have, but I was just doing that thing where I was embracing non-intervention. If I commented, I thought it opened the door for his sister to start texting me. But as far as John could tell, I never saw about his death, which created a different problem. Those accounts were deleted within a few weeks. Yes, a few weeks later, a new account followed me on Instagram and on Twitch. In the fall of 2022, RIP John's screen name was gone, and now it was John underscore living underscore with underscore chronic underscore illness. I checked out that Instagram account, 
It had the same photos that he had sent me during the year that he was interacting with me. John in a wheelchair, close-ups of medications, a benzodiazepine, pain patches, and stool softeners. The bio on Twitch indicated that he was living with MS. I didn't follow it back or acknowledge that one either. On Twitch, there's a way that a community can be built up by a streamer, and it's called raids. You raid into another streamer. Basically, what's done is you dump all of your viewers into a new stream of your choosing when you're all done streaming. That way, they all go together to watch the next streamer as a community. Smaller streamers will sometimes raid bigger streamers to get a shout out and to get the notice of their community while still sharing their viewers. Bigger streamers will sometimes raid into smaller streamers because it's a thrill for smaller streamers to suddenly have more than double their normal viewer count. It's mostly just a way for one streamer to let another streamer know that they're there and that their community's watching. An alert usually pops up on the screen and says something like, Mrs. Ruby is raiding with a party of 65. By the time this John living with chronic illness account came up, the chat was well aware of what had happened, and they weren't terribly pleased with John. So when he raided me, and my screen popped up with an alert that said, John with chronic illness is raiding with a party of one, everyone in the chat said, just ignore it, Katie. We see it. Ignore it. So I did. Normally, I'd thank a streamer for a raid, but not this time. Just nothing at all. He knew I'd seen it. He knew I wasn't going to interact. But I didn't feel victorious. I didn't feel scared. I felt sad. He so clearly wanted my attention. He didn't care if it was negative or positive. He just wanted to be seen. And even though I didn't want to invite him back into my friendship, I hated the idea of him just feeling terrible, even if he kind of deserved it. I was no Melanie Wilkes in this situation. I was just Katie Ruvalcapa, person struggling to show love. When I started to write this podcast, I went back to check the Instagram account to see if he had continued updating it after I had given him the cold shoulder. Boy, Addie. The account is still there, but the name had been changed to John Living in Italy Now. The bio says that he sold his house in the UK in July of 2022, apparently not to Brooke, who was supposed to have bought it that spring. And now he was living in Cinque Terre in Italy with his girlfriend. So that's that, I guess. John was sick and he died and then he came back from the dead to live a life of chronic illness that rapidly resolved when he met a girl and moved to Italy. I'm confident that this Italy storyline is for someone else's benefit, the same way that Brooke being a crafty cricket girl with a Peloton had been for mine. When I'm feeling spiteful, I think of this as being funny and how absurd the whole thing is. But if I spend too much time on it, it just makes me sad. The length that he's gone to in order to get attention. What's going on in his real life that he creates this online fantasy at great personal detriment? Some of you have reached out to me asking if I'm worried or if I'm okay. A lot of you have told me that you're sorry this happened to me. And I am thankful for the concern. But honestly, other than the swatting, which I can't even prove was really a result of this situation, I feel like John is the one we need to feel sorry for. When you have a good life full of people who love you, the weird things that people do on the internet don't hurt you as much. But when your whole life revolves around being someone that you're not on the internet, you have a lot to lose by being caught out in it. If there's anything to take away from this situation, in my mind, it's this. People need love. The internet, like everywhere else in the world, is full of people who are struggling and need to know that they're loved. Approach them with care and with kindness. Never forget the person behind the keyboard. 
Never forget that the streamer is a human being with her own struggles. The podcaster is a father who has to coach third grade t-ball in the morning. The media personalities aren't made of stone. And the people who seem to suck usually suck because of a wound somewhere in their own heart. There's no need to deepen the wound, and there's all the need in the world for love. One of my real-life heroes, St. Teresa of Calcutta, was once approached by a young person who wanted to make the world better. They wanted to throw off their life and join her in India to serve the people in need. Effectively, this person wanted to give up who they were and live a missionary fantasy. And St. Teresa said to her, Stay where you are. Find your own Calcutta. Find the sick, the suffering, and the lonely right where you are, in your own homes and in your own families. In homes and in your workplace and in your schools, you can find Calcutta all over the world if you have eyes to see. Everywhere you go, you find people who are unwanted, unloved, uncared for, and just rejected by society, completely forgotten, completely left alone. Someone who loves me asked me why stay online when something like this with John can happen, and the answer is simple. I love the people I've met online. Through Twitch, through Twitter, these people mean so much to me and to my family. I pray for them. They've watched my family grow. The internet is my Calcutta. I'm perfectly happy to be the fool to let them know that they are meaningful and worthy of love. It's so much harder to love someone who is difficult or who tells lies, but that doesn't mean that they aren't worthy of love. Everyone is. That and I still have John's address, so if he tries to harm me, I can give it to this Englishman that I know who drank in Essex for over a decade, and he's happy to settle that debt for me if need be. Anyway, thank you for listening to Season 1 of Parasocial Anxiety. I'm already at work on Season 2, and I hope to have it out to you shortly. But I want to make you aware in advance, Season 2 is going to be dark, and it involves an actual prosecuted crime. So just a heads up for next time. This episode of Parasocial Anxiety was written, produced, and edited by me, Katie Ruvalcaba, and all of the errors in the timeline are my own fault. This series of events took place between the summer of 2021 and the summer of 2022, but I think occasionally I flipped those years around, so if you notice that, I apologize. The cover art was made by Brandon Ocampo, theme music by Cybris. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to encourage more content of this kind, specifically season two, please consider donating at paypal.me slash Mrs. Ruby.